It's the 19th of May in the year of our salvation, 2007. It's the feast of St. Peter Celestine, Pietro Celestino Quinto. And you're back with Father Z and one more podcast. I am very happy to welcome today St. Augustine of Hippo, the great doctor of grace, who died in 430. We'll be hearing some of his tractate number 124 on the Gospel of John. Also, we'll talk about uh, a Mass that I celebrated today for, the, for Monsignor Richard Schuler, a Requiem Mass for the 30th day after his death. And I have some comments about St. Peter Celestine and how did he wind up in Dante's hell anyway? Let's get right to work. We'll hear today a selection from Augustine of Hippo's Tractate 124 on the Gospel of John. It covers John 21, 19 to 25. You can get out your Bible and look that up right away. Uh, these were sermons and uh, on the whole Gospel of John. It took uh, Augustine a couple of years to do this. We're, the dating of it is really problematic. Uh, we figure that uh, tractates number 1 through 54 were probably preached all of them in Hippo um, you know maybe around 416 somewhere around there again you know the dates aren't secure and then the second block uh, 55 to 124 are very very hard to locate uh, they're probably not all in Hippo uh, he was probably out on the road in places like Carthage and Caesarea but um, they still have an oral character uh, one theory is is that they were uh, preached and then, of course, written down by the ever-present stenographers that uh, went around with Augustine everywhere he went, uh, writing his, his homilies down. And then he would send them home uh, back to Hippo Regius uh, to be read out loud to the people. So uh, it might be that these are Augustine of Hippo's own podcasts, really, uh, sent back home to Hippo Regius. And when Augustine would preach, he would sit uh, in front of the people and he'd have the scroll of scriptures on his lap and uh, then he would explain it to his flock uh, and um, the, actually a tractate is a is a technical term for the type of sermon that has a lot of extra Jesus in it commentary on scripture so Augustine would explain the scriptures and uh, the people would react very uh, energetically they would uh, interrupt with applause or shouts they'd shout at him or sometimes uh, they'd groan or burst into tears and cry and uh, Augustine talks about these things you know, I hear by your reaction, and then he would describe it and then go on and incorporate it right into his homily, and the stenographers just wrote down everything that happened. And uh, he used a very direct style of rhetoric. Uh, very often his sermons are dominated by what we call the sermo humilis, uh, a humble style. But, uh, you know, he was a skillful orator, and, and so he used all of the different devices of rhetoric and different styles. Um, 
Remember that the, the purposes of rhetoric were to teach, to please, and to persuade. And usually, uh, because he's teaching here, uh, he would uh, use the humble style, the sermo humilis, but he always had to please and persuade too, so he mixes the styles together. But sermo humilis really dominates his preaching. And uh, one of the tools that he uses in his exegesis of Scripture uh, in these tractates is uh, allegory. He implores an allegory or symbolic interpretation of Scripture. And he does this for a very, uh, very specific reason. First of all, it's a good crowbar for him to get into the deeper meaning. But uh, he also knew that because of the fall and because of the difficulties we have in our intellect, uh, God talks through us through signs, and uh, it's uh, looking at these signs in Scripture, even in the historical uh, events of the Gospels, everything takes on a deeper meaning through an allegorical interpretation. That, that everything becomes a sign for Augustine that he then uh, spins out. Now, in this uh, tractate, uh, which is the very last of the tractates on the Gospel of John, he, he jumps right in, like right in, in into the water, and he begins talking about uh, questions about why Christ says, follow me to Peter and not to the others, and why he said that John would have to remain until he came. This is the, the really the topic here, because Peter loved Christ more than the others, but John was the disciple Jesus loved. And so Augustine, uh, unlocking these questions about these, these things, um, explains the gospel in allegorical terms. He makes Peter and he makes John symbols of something. He makes Peter the, uh, the symbol of the active life, and he makes John the symbol of the contemplative life. And, you know, of course, the two of them living uh, together in the world meant one thing, and they mean one thing in this present world to us. We're, we're still here on earth. But in heaven, uh, the distinctions aren't going to be so clear. So listen to how uh, Augustine uses uh, this allegory and turns Peter into a symbol and John into a symbol and see where he goes with it. Extractatibus Sancti Augustini Episcopi in Ioannem. Duas vitas sibi divinitus predicatas et commendatas novit ecclesia, quarum est una in fide, altera in specie, una in tempore peregrinationis, altera in eternitate mansionis, una in labore, altera in requie, una in via, altera in patria. Una in opere actionis, altera in mercede contemplationis. Ista significata est per apostolum There are two ways of life that God has commended to the church. One is through faith. The other is through vision. One is in pilgrimage through a foreign land. The other is in our eternal home. One in labor, the other in repose. One in a journey to our homeland, the other in that land itself. One in action, the other 
in the fruits of contemplation. The first life, the life of action, is personified by the Apostle Peter, the contemplative life by John. The first life is passed here on earth until the end of time, when it reaches its completion. The second is not fulfilled until the end of the world, but in the world to come it lasts forever. For this reason Peter is told, follow me. But Jesus adds, if I want John to stay behind until I come, what does it matter to you? You are to follow me. You are to follow me by imitating me in enduring suffering. He is to remain till I come to restore the blessings that last forever. To put it more clearly, let action, which is complete in itself, follow me and follow the example of my passion. But let contemplation, which has only begun, remain until I come, wait until the moment of its completion. It is the fullness of patience to follow Christ loyally, even to death. The fullness of knowledge lies in wait until Christ comes again, when it will be revealed and made manifest. The ills of this world are endured in the land of the dying. The good gifts of God will be revealed in the land of the living. We should not understand, I want him to stay behind until I come, as meaning to remain permanently, but rather to wait. What is signified by John will not be fulfilled now, but it will be fulfilled when Christ comes. On the other hand, what is signified by Peter, to whom Jesus says, follow me, must be realized now, or it will never be fulfilled. But we should not separate these great apostles. They were both part of the present life, symbolized by Peter, and they were both part of the future life, symbolized by John. Considered as symbols, Peter followed Christ and John remained. But in their living faith, both endured the evils of the present life and both looked forward to the future blessings of the coming life of joy. It is not they alone that do this, but the whole of the Holy Church, the Bride of Christ, who needs to be rescued from the trials of the present and to be brought to safety in the joys of the future. Individually, Peter and John represent these two lives, the present and the future, but both journeyed in faith through this temporal life and both will enjoy the second life by vision eternally. All the faithful form an integral part of the body of Christ, and therefore, so that they may be steered through the perilous seas of this present life, Peter, first among the apostles, has received the keys of the kingdom of heaven to bind and loose from sin, and also for the sake of the faithful, so that they may keep the still and secret heart of this mode of life, John the evangelist rested on Christ's breast. It is not Peter alone who binds and looses sins, but the whole church. It is not John alone who has drunk at the fountain of the Lord's breast and pours forth what he had drunk in his teaching of the Word being God in the beginning, God with God, of the Trinity and unity of God, of all those things which we shall see face to face in his kingdom, but now before the Lord comes we see only in images and reflections, not John alone. For the Lord himself spreads John's gospel throughout the world, 
giving everyone to drink as much as he is capable of absorbing. In speculo atque in enigmate contuenda sunt, que predicando ructaret de fonte dominici pectoris solus bibit, sed ipse dominus ipsum evangelium pro sua cuiusque capacitate omnibus suis bibendum, toto terarum orbe diffudit. That was Tractate 124 on the Gospel of John, the last of the tractates. And uh, Augustine uses the allegorical way of interpreting the scripture here, uh, asking questions about it and then looking for the, diff you know, the deeper meaning. And, uh, he, of course, he makes Peter into a symbol of the active life and John into uh, the symbol of the contemplative life. And there's always going to be a tension between the active and the contemplative, right? Uh, Augustine explores this, temp this tension between active and contemplative very often in his comments on Scripture uh, and what he's giving homilies. Uh, at times, he will present uh, different pairs of figures that represent these two different dimensions. For example, he does the same thing about active and contemplative with Leah and Rachel. And also, of course, with Martha and Mary, you know, there's the unum necessarium, right? The one thing is necessary, right? The contemplative thing. Well, I mean, there, if the one thing is, you know, necessary, then what did we ever do about the act of life, right? You see, there's a, a tension between active and contemplative. And in his own life, Augustine was torn between the pressing needs of his uh, vocation as a bishop, uh, who was also a civic figure. I mean, they had to run courts and everything, the bishops did. And on the other hand, uh, Augustine's deep desire for quiet and, and the ability to study and contemplate deeper questions. Uh, he, so he, what he does is he explains that these two different modes of Christian life seem to be in conflict in this world, but in the next world, they are going to be integrated in perfect unity. And in our own lives, of course, we always are going to feel the tension between the active and the contemplative, aren't we? We're bustling around, we're so busy, but we, many of us, of course, long for calm uh, periods of quiet so we can you know, reflect and meditate and you know, rest our minds in the contemplation of some deep question. Augustine tried to balance these things uh, in his life, and the way that he would describe them in his writings when he's talking about himself and his own life, is otium and negotium. Otium is leisure or vacant time. It's freedom from business. You know, that doesn't mean, you know, that otium means you're lounging around, you have nothing to do, but it means that you're not harried by the, the, uh, the, the troubles of life. Negotium is the negation of otium. And therefore, it's its, its opposite. Negotium means business or employment, like an occupation, uh, affairs of life that you have to deal with. Negotium. And of course, there's an, a mercantile meaning to it, too. In here, in Italy, a negozio is a shop, you know, where you do business. 
But uh, just as peace is not the absence of war, but, and, but far more, otium is not just the absence of pressing business. Otium might be very busy in some senses. It could be very filled with action. But it, it could be perhaps giving far more space to interior activity than outward physical action, you see. I suppose that we could even say that the, you know, the busy gardening and preparing of gardens and lawns and houses, if that's an enjoyable thing and it's restful for you, that could be otium, even though it's very busy. But this otium and negotium pairing is a Topos in classical thought. A topos is a like a like a commonly explored theme in the ancient world, and the, the classical writers uh, write about otium and negotium too. But Augustine, when he talks about otium, he wants to establish otium in negotio. That's freedom from care while being in the midst of it actually being able to contemplate and pray while you in within the performance of your daily works so that in the busy things of life you can still in the action itself find a way to rest and meditate within it so you might even think about some laborious and repetitive tasks that we have like you know doing the laundry or whatever i mean there are some people who have jobs that are mind crushingly repetitive in this horrible cycle but maybe there would be ways to use those activities themselves uh, by disciplining yourself in them as an opportunity for meditation and even contemplation uh, we all have to find uh, within our daily grind, this this freedom, uh, a liberty from the oppression of busyness. And this tension is always going to be here for Christians all the way along. And uh, you think about it also, uh, what this would mean for our active participation at Mass, right? Action and contemplation. Uh, we are asked uh, by Holy Church to enter into full, conscious, and active participation. Now, a lot of priests and musicians and liturgists have been bamboozled into thinking that the very shallowest understanding of active participation is what Holy Church wants from us. And so they think that if people aren't, you know, doing stuff, clapping and carrying things around and singing every word and all that business, that they're not participating actively. But what Holy Church really means by active participation is interior participation. In fact, it's our baptismal character, which is an interior reality uh, that allows us to participate because, uh, for example, an unbaptized person like a Muslim or someone might come to a mass and he would could do everything he's directed to do and everything everyone else is doing, but he's not really participating in Mass, not in the deeper sense. He can't because he is not able to receive what is being really given because he's not baptized. On the other hand, some crippled up old, you know, blind woman who's deaf and can't see very well, but she's baptized and she really knows why she's there and she is trying, striving to unite her heart and mind and will to the action of the Mass, even though her body prevents her from doing anything outwardly. Well, she's actively participating very well because active participation is really active receptivity. As when you listen to the Gospel, for example, you listen to the priest's prayers and uh, artistic music sung by a good choir uh, singing a sacred text. 
In fact, the church even says in one document that uh, the highest form of active participation, the summit of it all, is reception of Holy Communion in the state of grace. You think about that. In communion, outward action and receptivity have their perfect unity because you have to physically go up and physically receive it. But what's happening inside, interior, in, interiorly in your soul, is what really it's all about. So the reception of, of Holy Communion is our perfect model for otium and negotio, for action and contemplation, for uh, motion and calm and for full, active, and conscious participation. Well, this afternoon I went over to the little church just off of the just along the Tiber River called San Gregorio ai Muratori and this is the church that the fraternity of St. Peter has it's a little tiny place uh, in a kind of the end of an alley and you'd never know it was there if you didn't know where it was in the first place and you were consciously trying to look for it but uh, there we had today a requiem mass for Monsignor Richard Schuler for his 30th uh, day after his death and it was very nice they set up the catafalque uh, all black catafalque and they put a Monsignor's Beretta on top of it and the purple stole and they had candles set all around it and it uh, had the black pall with you know skulls on it it was very uh, very requiem like and uh, I sang the mass it was a misa cantata that meant that it was sung but there wasn't any deacon or subdeacon fine uh, uh, singer came to do all of the chants for the mass everything was sung and it was quite the quite the the saint agnes of saint paul moment there too because monsignor schuler had been pro pastor of saint agnes church in uh, saint paul minnesota for 32 years and uh, there were people from saint agnes there two of the people who served uh, lived at St. Agnes for a while and um, uh, 
were our parishioner, were parishioners there. And then they're in the pews who came uh, to pray at Mass, uh, to a participate actively with full conscious and active participation at this Tridentine sung Mass, was a brand new deacon uh, who belongs uh, to St. Agnes Parish. And he's studying here in Rome at the North American College. And then there was another fellow, a priest came, a friend of mine who spent uh, time, in, he's German, but he spent some time in the United States and uh, stayed at St. Agnes. I, of course, was personally there. And so it was quite the St. Agnes thing. And so we got together and, and uh, prayed for the repose of the soul of Monsignor Richard Schuler. Remember, folks, when people die, don't automatically assume that they've gone straight to heaven. I think that if, you know, when we die, wouldn't we really like to have people actually praying for us? Uh, rather than assuming that we don't need prayers, I sure am going to need prayers. I'm going to need an awful lot of prayers. Pray for the dead. It's a spiritual work of mercy to pray for the dead at all times, not just on All Souls Day, but all the time. Among the several saints listed on my wall calendar today, we have also San Pietro Celestino Quinto, St. Peter Celestin V. He was a pope, and he died in 1296, and he's quite an interesting fellow. He shows up in Dante's Divine Comedy, but Dante, at least we think it's Peter Celestin he's talking to, there that Dante recognizes down there, he puts him in hell. So how does St. Peter Celestine wind up in Dante's hell? Well, for an answer to that, uh, we turn to the Dante Encyclopedia, which is a very, very useful thing uh, you should have at hand when you read Dante. And um, I'll just read you the article here. Celestino Quinto, Pope, born Pietro da Morrone, around 1215 in the province of Molise in central Italy, most probably at San Angelo Limosano, the son of a family of peasants. He became a Benedictine monk in the monastery of Santa Maria di Faifula before 1230, and then a hermit in the Moroni Mountains near Sulmona, where he organized a company of hermits that was incorporated into the Benedictine order by Pope Gregory X in 1275. Pietro moved from Santo Spirito del Morrone and his nearby cell at Santo Onofrio to the hermitage of Santo Spirito in the Maiella Mountains, farther to the east. He did that around 1240. 
He structured his community according to the model of the Cistercians, and although he never received a formal education, he proved to be an efficient organizer who attracted many donors, so that his congregation soon spread from the Abruzzi to Rome and Apulia. He was said to heal the sick and work miracles, and his reputation was high at the papal court and in the Angevin court in Naples. When, after a vacancy of the papal throne of almost three years because of divisions in the College of Cardinals, King Charles II of Anjou mentioned Pietro's name to the cardinals, and this eventually led to his election as pope by inspiration on the 5th of July, 1294, at Perugia. Accepting the name of Celestino, which means heavenly one, he was anointed and crowned at L'Aquila on the 29th of August. Firmly under the control of King Charles II from the beginning, he followed the king to Naples in October. On September 18th, he created 12 new cardinals, the number of the apostles, among them five monks, as though he intended to initiate the age of the Holy Spirit, which was beginning to be the age of the monks, according to the eschatological speculations of Joachim of Fiore. Soon corruption became widespread at the Curia, and Celestine realized that he was not capable of governing the church. He seriously considered abdicating a possibility afforded him by canon law. Although the cardinals tried to persuade him not to renounce his office, Fearing the consequences of such an unprecedented act, Celestine abdicated his position on December 13, 1294, after only five months in office. Shortly afterwards, the cardinals elected as his successor Benedict Caetani, who took the papal name of Boniface VIII. Peter fled to his hermitage of Sant'Onofrio, and from there to Apulia, where he tried to escape to Greece by following the examples of Franciscan spirituals on whom he had conferred the status of an independent community bearing his name to protect them from the persecutions of the majority of the order. But in June of 1295 he was arrested and returned to Boniface, then in residence at Anagni and Boniface placed him in custody in the nearby castle of Flamone, where he died of natural causes a year later, on May 19, 1296. He was buried in the church of Santa Maria di Colemaggio in L'Aquila. Through the efforts of his brethren, some spirituals and the French enemies of Boniface VIII, he was canonized on May 5, 1313, by Pope Clement V, but his name was cancelled from the official calendar of saints of the Roman Church in 1969 because he had been venerated only locally in his Abruzzi homeland. The simple hermit pope, who was not, however, without harsh traits of character, soon became the object of eschatological speculations about the angelic pope, and up to the present he has frequently served as the example of an alternative church, even though his short pontificate had proved that he was not capable of reforming the church. Since Dante immediately recognizes him, as most scholars think, although the identification is hypothetical, in the vestibule of hell among the neutrals as l'ombra di colui che fece per viltade il gran rifiuto, the shade of him who in his cowardice made the great refusal, 
That's Inferno Canto 3, 59 to 60. And it's also a reference in Inferno to Inferno 27, uh, 104 and following. He may well have seen, Dante may have well seen Celestine as a member of a Florentine delegation to Naples in November of 1294. Dante thus was among the few who criticized his abdication, which opened the way to his unworthy successor, Boniface VIII. Although Dante did not consent, Dante did not contest the validity and legitimacy of Boniface's election, he despised Celestine's abdication as an act of pusillanimous irresponsibility. The fact that he does not identify the figure explicitly has led critics and commenters to assign various names to this ombra, this shadow, among them Esau, Diocletian, Pontius Pilate, and Julian the Apostate. But his anonymity is also suggestive of his lack of character or strong identity. Not one of the neutrals in Inferno Canto Three is identified by name. Well, that was a little bit about Peter Celestine, St. Peter Celestine, who is on the Vatican calendar hanging on my wall. And uh, it's important because of the history of the church. He's one of the only popes who abdicated. There is one other who abdicated, and that didn't also uh, turn out uh, so well for the unity of the church. But you might remember that there was a lot of talk about John Paul II perhaps abdicating when he was an older man. So we now get to you know consider just what, what it is to have a father. A father figure is not someone who just abdicates his responsibilities, right? At any rate, uh, I'm going to wrap this pad podcast up. Uh, it's been a long day, and uh, I have to get some rest. It's getting on towards dark now, and I want to get it into the box, as, it say, as they say. Come and visit us at the blog, wdtprs.com, this whiskey delta tango papa romeo sierra.com. Hope to see you there. Give me some feedback, leave some comments, and participate with the rest of them. I hope all you and yours are happy and healthy. Bye-bye. <laughs>